Warning, Delaware Crime contains graphic material that might not be suitable for children under 18. Parental guidance, as well as listener guidance, is suggested and recommended. Delaware Crime is not licensed in psychology or psychiatry, and opinions are only based on facts of the case. Opinions are only opinions and not factual information. Courthouse in Wilmington, Walt. Well, it was about 20 after 1 this afternoon when Judge William Swain Lee took the stand. And he read from his decision for 12 minutes. In 12 minutes, the judge looked at Capano and sentenced him to die. Judge William Swain Lee called Tom Capano a malignant force, saying he could find no reason to spare Capano the death penalty, the murder of his former lover, Anne-Marie Fahey. He is a ruthless murderer who feels compassion for no one and remorse only for the circumstances in which he finds it himself. It is nice to know, and I think it's, it's, it's good for people to know that uh, it's not just the, the poor um, who get convicted of these kind of crimes, but if you, but uh, the rich and the powerful as well. Capano. Hello, my Delaware crime listeners. Happy Tuesday. Sorry for the delayed episode. Um, between internet, between the internet and production issues, I was unable to release the episode yesterday. And even I had some issues today. That's why I'm getting it out so late. Hopefully this will not be a continuous issue because I have, um, had somebody come and take care of all this, help me to fix it and everything. So hopefully we'll, um, you know, it'll be okay. So uh, today we are covering this high-profile case of Anne-Marie Fahey uh, and her murder in 1996. And you probably heard of it. Um, it involved a high-profile lawyer in the state of Delaware, Tom Capano, and uh, so it's quite a case. Um, it will be a two-week segment, so please be patient. There's so much information in this case, I had to make it into two weeks because uh, for the sanity of my listeners and myself, because it's, I'd be, you know, I'd be, it would be so long, you know. So um, I'm going to do a two part, which is my first time. So, and I think it'll be good, but um, I do want to say that next week I try to keep my, you know, podcast between 30 and 45 minutes so um you know if you want to you know if, if i would you know i don't want to break that and end up making it like an act two hours or something so that's that's what would happen so i'm going to hopefully we'll do it in two set two episodes or two weeks two weeks of episodes or i might even have to add a third one so just be patient you know it'll be worth it so, um, and I, I wanted to say, before we start this episode, um, the music that I played at the beginning of the episode, I usually play Feels Like Home to Me, which is my, you know, my or, original song for the episode, but um, I actually played Enya, um, and she was kind of, big, you know, big in the 1990s, uh, she still, you know, does everything, 
Um, but I wanted to play that one of her songs because uh, that was a real favorite of Annie uh, and Amory Fahey's. Uh, that was a favorite. Uh, she was her favorite artist, and she loved her songs. And um, so I wanted to make sure that I played that um, as an on as an honor to Annie because uh, you know it was. There's beautiful songs. I love their songs, and I can't tell you how many. You know how many Enya songs I have on my Spotify list or whatever. I, I, you know, she's just so beautiful her voice, and so I wanted to play that um, in the beginning credits, just so you know. Um, so anyway, so um, and she also like Sean Colvin. Um, she's another one that was kind of big in the nineties. Still does, you know, still sings. But um. And next week, I might even play one of her songs. So, we'll see uh, how it goes. So, um, but she really did love Enya and Sean Coven. So, so Anne-Marie Anne Fahey was 30, was a beautiful, vivacious, and loving person. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even though her childhood, childhood was way far from ideal. That is why many believe she was so kind and loving because of what she had to endure in her childhood. She never judged others and was the first one to volunteer to help anyone at all for anything. You know, she, that's how she was. She was a loving, caring soul. So Annie was born on July 27th, 1966 in Wilmington. Um, Wilmington, Delaware, and, and she lived actually like up in North Wilmington. I I actually rem know the area that she lived in, and that's kind of like really north for me. Um, you know, uh, so but you know, it's probably like a twenty minute drive to that area, or thirty minutes even. Um, so anyway, uh, so she was born to Robert and Kathleen Fahey. But sadly, her mother died, um, you know, when she was nine. So that was really sad because, you know, can you imagine being nine and your mother passing away? How, how horrible would that be? She had cancer, apparently. And to see her, you know, dying and, you know, that just was traumatic within itself. Um, you know, she, you know, was just her, um, so her mother died when she was nine and her father turned to alcohol to deal with the problems. So he, um, you know, he was used to having his way around, um, to do everything, you know, clean the house and, you know, it was back in the, you know, 60s. So, you know, he was used to having all that. Uh, early 70s, whatever, and uh, used to having, you know, um, the mother stayed home, and the father worked, and, you know, she kept the house, and took care of the kids, and so he didn't know, you know, what to do, and plus he was depressed because she, let, you know, died, so unfortunately, for his way of dealing with it, um, he, you know, would uh, turn alcohol, so Annie was the youngest of six siblings, okay? 
who were all very close and even, you know, stepped in to take care of her, um, you know, to, because the father was, you know, he, he couldn't do anything, you know, he just kept drinking. And, um, so, you know, it was, you know, she had a grandmother that she really loved her nan. Um, and she would come, you know, she's a Devon, Pennsylvania, but she would come like once a week and make meals and clean the house. She was wonderful. She was her mother's grandmother. So that was one positive thing. And, you know, like I said, her, her sisters, uh, or her sister and her brothers would help. So there was, uh, five other siblings. There's, you know, Amory was the youngest. Then there was Brian, there was Kathleen, Mark, and then Robert. So, you know, Big family there. That was, you know, big, and that's awesome. Um, you know. So, uh, there was a time when Annie would live with different family members because her dad would, you know, wasn't available to her. So, Annie was a very private and proud person. Most of her childhood, childhood her friends had no idea how terrible things were for her. They were clueless to the fact that her father would spend his social security on liquor instead of food um, and also, or prevent the gas and electricity from being shut off. That's just terrible. This turmoil oil in her life created an eating disorder and depression that um, as far as anxiety and all kinds of things that she tried to fight throughout her her 30 years. Um, when Annie was 12, her father remarried. His new wife had a son and daughter from a previous marriage. Anne was really happy to have someone to cook and clean, uh, take care of the house, and be a mother figure. But, you know, between his drinking problems, uh, Annie's dad had allegedly lied to his new bride, and she left him. Um, with the two kids. So that was the end of that. And, you know, really sad. Um, her dad often became verbally and physically abusive. Once locking Annie in the basement when she was, uh, you know, probably 10 or 11, um, because she wouldn't stop crying after he yelled at her or something. So that was, you know, she had a really big fear of dark places because of that. Um, that I read, you know, I read all the books. There's like four different books. Um, you know, so that was terrible. Another instance, her dad uh, tried to beat Annie with a hockey stick that she used for playing field hockey on her team at a present school. But she was able to overpower him and get away. Thank gosh. So, you know, Annie's father, throughout the time that she lived with him, um, up till probably maybe junior, senior in high school, uh, he would call her, you know, all these years from nine to whatever. Um, because, you know, her brothers and sisters did help, but they, you know, they were young and they had gone off to college and, you know, they could only do so much of her kids. So, but they ended up, you know, even older. They helped her a lot. Um, so, you know, um, you know, he was, Annie called, Annie's father constantly called her fat, 
ugly, stupid, and when she was older, he called her a slut, even though she had never been with a boy. So, Anne-Marie was often sent to those relatives or friends. She felt like a burden to anyone, and when she was welcomed in open arms to a good friend's home, who loved having her there with them and considered her family and the pets, and also the parents that she was living, the family she was living with, the parents treated her like their own. But she never wanted to feel like a burden. And she she um, never ate too much at dinner. You know, that was a big thing because she was used to not having food and she didn't want to be a burden. And her dad always thought she was fat. So, you know, um, so she ate, never ate too much at dinner because she didn't want to, you know, burden them by eating too much food or, you know, so that was something she struggled with. Also cleaning, um, she was obsessively cleaning up after herself for the family um, and for the family. You know, she would, you know, her father always told her she was a burden, so she always felt like she was. There was something that led her, that was something that led her to her problems with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and a near obsessive neatness. Many of her friends and family returned to her, referred to her lovingly as Anal Annie. So, and you know, I read in a book that one thing that she kids, you know, with kids and her nieces and nephews, and I think one of her uh, nephews. She ended up having dinner with every Monday night, uh, Mark's son. So she really, you know, um, she had little nicknames. I think she called one of her uh, nephews Buster Brown or something. She just was so, you know, so great with the kids. Her siblings have even said that. (laughs) So, um, you know, Annie graduated from Brandywine High School in 1984. That's when I graduated. Yep. But I went to AI, sorry. <laughs> um, she went on to, which is close to Brandywine, not too far away. They're based in Wilmington. Um, so uh, she went on to study international relations, um, you know, when she went to back, to, you know, to college, which was great. Um, but it did. she did, even though she suffered an emotional setback when her father, Robert, died in 1986 of leukemia, which, you know, even though he wasn't the best father, she still, you know, every every girl loves their father. So it was very hard on her. And then her grandmother, Nan Megedian, uh, who was one of the only adults she trusted besides her siblings, died in 1992. So, it was, you know, it wasn't the most ideal situation to have those things, uh, you know, happen. Um, but she... You know, but Annie was motivated. She didn't, and she still drove on impressively. Um, she and drove on as she impressively worked part time as a waitress and went to college full time in order to graduate to work towards a better life. She was, you know, she she was motivated. Um, she even went abroad to Spain for a semester and on a trip to Ireland with her brother Brian. She spent time with distant relatives after graduating um, after graduating from college. 
reached uh, after graduating, Annie got a fa um, a family friend got her job in Washington D.C. working for Thomas Carper, then an elected uh, congressman, Democratic congressman. So she was a congressman, and one of her friends, uh, she had a lot of friends, and at, like the Frios, they were very political and. So they introduced her parents uh, when, you know, they got married. And so she, you know, that people loved her so much. They were willing to help her. And, you know, it was wonderful. So she got a job, uh, you know, an up and coming, she got a up and coming a job with the up and coming congressman, Mr. Carper, which he's still, you know, um, now he is a state um, senator in Congress. So that's, you know, still in politics. Uh, so anyway, so then um, after graduating, she got the job in D.C. And then in 1992, when Carper was elected as Delaware's governor, he took Annie back to Delaware with him, making her his scheduling secretary. So that's a big deal. I mean, that's that's, you know. He, she scheduled all his meetings, his governors, and, you know, all his appearances. And, you know, have to have a lot of trust in someone to, you know, you know, he was very impressed with Annie, um, you know. And I think he even looked at her as he was like a father figure to her, you know. Um, you know, he was always trying to fix her up. And his wife was always trying to fix, fix, uh, fix her up. And they were always, so I think they kind of stepped in as parents uh, a little bit they just that's how much everybody loved uh, Annie and I want to say that Annie was so motivated uh, you know I did wanted to bring this up that she was the first one in the office in the governor's office every morning before anybody else like she was there before anybody else ever showed up every day I mean she was a very hard-working sharp sweet lady so, um, and she was great at her job because she had that personality. So, um, for an intelligent, able young woman in her mid-twenties, the future suddenly looked brave for Annie. I mean, she had it all. She she had even gotten an, an, her, finally gotten her own apartment uh, in the city, uh, you know, it was on top of a, you know, it was a, like a little row home, but there were three floors and she was on the top floor apartment and uh you know she had this wonderful um landlord that she was close to that was like kind of like a, a mother figure so she you know she really had uh you know she was really going places until sadly she met thomas capano in 1993 at a democratic fundraising event she attended with her lifelong friend Jill Morrison. Uh, sorry about that, folks. Uh, but anyway, so she, uh, you know, was there with Jill Morrison, her lifelong friend, as a Democratic fundraiser. Tom had shown up. He was there in place of his wife, Kay, who he had three children with. By the way, three three girls, or four girls. I'm sorry, he had four girls with. Uh you know, Kay, who was originally invited, but she had come down with the flu at the last minute. So, uh, you know, Tom attended uh, in her place. 
where he uh, evidently used his swoon act to impress Annie and Jill. He was a mover and a shaker in social, financial, and political circles in the state. Hardly surprising for the son of Louis Capano. Um, and, uh, you know, he actually, Lou, the father, died in the 1980s. And he was very proud of Tom. He, um, you know, cried. I, I don't think anybody in their family, even the brothers, uh, I think they went to college for a few years. But Tom, like, actually went to Boston College and then went to law school. You know, so he was, like, only one in the family who ever finished college and, you know, even law school. So that was pretty neat. Um, so his father was cried at his, all his graduations. Uh, so he was like the, you know, the the you know the white sheep of the family. You know, he was the one that you know. Um, I know his brother had brothers when they were younger. They had some legal issues, but he and he always got them out of them. And he was like the shining star. So I think that was an issue for his brothers too sometimes, you know. But anyway, so uh, he, you know, he was, you know, his dad, his dad Lewis had a construction firm that he had built, that had built much of Wilmington's residential housing and business businesses. I mean, they, you know, the oldest son is pretty much the primary person now, um, Lewis. Uh, the, um, and he is, uh, you know, he they've built shopping centers and uh, you name it. I mean, there was once a, uh, you know, they built one shopping center that has a Home Depot and uh, kitchen place. And uh, I mean, it's like humongous. And uh, when they first built that back in 1997 or 1996, it was like right around the time she disappeared. Um there was a rumor going around that that's where her body, where Annie's body was, but you know that's not true. So you'll hear that soon. Um, <clears throat> so that's how that started. Um, so by time Capanna began wooing, <coughs> excuse me, Fahey in 1993, the family empire had grown. And uh, you know his family empire. And uh, by the time, you know, by that time, Capano uh, and his four brothers were millionaires pretty much many times over because of the, you know, all the, you know, the father left him all the, you know, the businesses and the money. And Thomas Capano, like I said, you know, he went to Boston College Law, law School. And he lived with his wife and four daughters in an elegant white mansion. And uh, I'm very familiar with that house because um, it's actually used to be before they moved in, uh, the Panos, it was the Bishop's house. It's near the Diocese of Wilmington and it's uh, in that area. My dad actually grew up in that area in 40 acres. And uh, so it's a really nice, beautiful area. There is bad parts of Wilmington, but this is like a kind of a, you know, um, wealthy area of Wilmington. It's unbelievable that there's a place like that. <laughs> and then you go into the down in the city and it's totally different. Um, you know, like near Market Street and Rondy Square, it's very different. But um, anyway, so, you know, that's, you know, um, 
where they lived and it was just a beautiful home. It's still there, uh, but apparently it's turned into office building. So, um, you know, Tom lived with his wife and four daughters in the White Mansion. He had served as a state deputy attorney um, before becoming a senior partner at a big law firm. Um, and he, you know, he did it all. He went left college and did all these things and did his career right. You know, he, until then he went to private practice, you know, which was the way you really began to make money. Um, so, you know, he, he was a very successful you know, person. Um, so, and he, then he was eventually senior partner, which is okay. So, um, I'm going to stop here, uh, for a Listen, come closer. What's more powerful than a voice in your ear, even through hours of motorway monotony, a voice can make you imagine anything. Cradling a baby dragon as it draws its first breath, or strangling your lover as he exhales his last. When we listen, amazing things happen in here. Audible, an Amazon company. Download your first audiobook for free at www. Audible, A-U-D-I-V-L-E dot com. Audible, amazing things happen when you listen. So, we're back. Um, and uh, like I said, I just love Audible. Um you know, it's wonderful. My son and I, you know, um, we listen to podcasts on it. We read books from it. We do everything. Um, you know, like I said, we um, homeschool my son. Um, right now he's 17. So, and you know, we use that. We use it for that. There's so many things you can use it for when you're at the gym, just like Rebel Wilson was saying, and uh, I love her, by the way. So, um, you know, it's it's a very, you know, all you have to do is, you know, um, just, you know, put the, um, you know, if you have Amazon, just put the, you know, um, you know, I, the app, you know, you download the app, and it's very reasonable, and I was on there the other night, I must have, I had so many free books I could get. <laughs> You know, when you buy just, like, a few books, they give you, like, the chimney you just download for free. It's unbelievable. And then instead of you having to sit down and read the book, um, you know, they will read it for you, which is wonderful. I mean, I actually read, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chris Pratt's wife, or her name, Schwarzenegger, Catherine Schwarzenegger's uh, book. I did it, read it on Audible, her new book. Um, I forget what it is. It's, like, a bunch of stories. It's so wonderful so i recommend that so uh you know just to keep you up to date about audible so anyway so uh you know there's originally uh you know tom capano um he did do some counsel for governor carper um so eventually so sometimes you know he would come by 
the office, especially when he knew that Annie was working there. So it started out originally there was a mini friendship between the multimillionaire lawyer and the governor's age, 17 years, her junior. And then it soon grew to a full-blown affair with lunches to secret out-of-town um, tri- little trips. He showered her with gifts. Um, and by the way, Annie felt 100% guilty about her affair because of her Catholic upbringing. She told no one in her life except Jill Morrison about the affair because she knew it was wrong. Um, her eating disorders, depression, and guilt were were at an unhealthy high when she was in this relationship with Tom. Um, you know, because it wasn't like her to to behave like this. It just you know, he had to draw. You know, he just had a way of sucking people in. You know, I don't know. I did it, but she would constantly tell herself her dad was right. She was a slut, even though it was not was a hundred percent false, which was not even true. Thomas constant Thomas's constant emotional abuse and put downs did not help Annie either. And he was good at that. Like when he didn't get what he wanted or you know, he he always complained about how she dressed and you know, he wanted her you know, at one point he said he wanted it her, he wanted to buy her Lexus, and she did not, you know, like I said, she was not big on ha- uh, handouts, so that didn't work, um, and, you know, she also, um, you know, he wanted to, her to work for the Capano brothers, put her job at the governor, and, you know, and then he, she said he, she'd make more money, and she could have her own apartment, and he'd pay for it, uh, I mean, she did have her own apartment, but, you know, he wanted to put her in a, you know, apartment that, you know, they owned an apartment complex, uh, you know, Cavaliers, and he wanted to put her there, so it was, uh, you know, he, he, you know, but she did not, you know, didn't want that, so she didn't take handouts, and she liked her job at the governor's office, uh, and her friends, you know, that she worked with there, so she told no one about, you know, no one in her life about the affair, except for her friend, one of her friends, I think, Jill Morrison, you know, and Thomas' constant emotional abuse and put downs did not help either, like I said. More than though, Capano began to dictate Anne-Marie's life. Okay? And to do that, um, not, not, and not very, uh, you know, not very nicely. You know, it was, uh, uh, he had a lot of meltdowns and screams and, you know, he didn't do what she wanted. You know, it would get ugly. The girl who effect who had effectively grown up um, with a mother, without a mother or a father, um, you know, and was you know with somebody that pretty much, you know, was toxic, just like her dad was to her. Yet, as the months passed, her doubts, and especially her guilt about the liaison with the married man, grew progressively deeper. So, she was starting to feel like maybe this wasn't, I mean, you have to remember, you know, she's in her 20s. So, you know, people, you know, when they're younger, people don't, you know, sometimes they don't think. So, you know, we've all been there. 
but she did because of her, you know, because of her heart and everything. So, um, she, in 1994, she sought psychological help from one of her brothers, uh, Robert, to help her pay for therapist. She became my best friend, a mentor, the man with the greatest smile as her as her diary record said. He was more like a father figure, you know, her therapist at the time. <clears throat> like so many, so much in her life, though, even this strictly professional relationship came to a tragically premature end when in 1995, the therapist, whom, she, like I said, she considered father figure, um, died in a car crash by the hands of a drunk driver. So that was another blow to her because she knew this was the first, um, you know, she had a therapist, you know, the therapist was helping her and, you know, he was like a father figure. I think he was a grandfather too. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, very sad, you know, for, for her because that was somebody in her life that she trusted that was helping her to get healthy. So um, by the end of 1993, the five foot ten inch uh, Anne Marie had developed bulimia, and her weight had plummeted, um, you know, down to an all time low. Uh, Capano's obsession with her remained, you know, undiminished. He he wouldn't. He just was like getting more and more upset, despite the fact that he, that he had. Um, had simultaneously had uh, other affairs with a string of women and had a 12-year relationship with a Delaware school administrator, Debbie McIntyre, the ex-wife of one of his associates in the law, law office he worked in that started when he was married, when she was married to the, to the, to the man. Um, and they eventually they got divorced, but they were married when the affair started. And we know he was still married. Okay. When he met Annie. So, you know, they, he was in a 12 year relationship with this woman. Uh, you know, she'd gotten divorced, but he just, you know, and he was married and kids. And then he was seeing Annie on the side and neither one of them knew about each other. I mean, he did, you know, they, Debbie McIntyre did not know anything. You know, Tom would say differently, but she didn't even know about, um, you know, Anne-Marie. Everyone heard that name and, you know, so it was, you know, quite a shock. And Annie had no idea about Debbie. So, you know, he was, a, and, you know, I think, you know, I he might have even been deceived, deceitful to Kay, you know, about, like, you know, so it was just... He was a, quite a, quite a, you know, master of manipulation, I guess you could say. Um, so that was, you know, um, and that was, uh, that opened a bunch of uh, skeletons too with their sex life, you know, um, that was, a, that, we'll get into that next week. But um, anyway, so, um His possessiveness, and, you know, and then, and, um, so Annie was kind of, like, stepping away from him. You know, she did not, um, 
you know, want to be with somebody that was, he was very possessive and told her how, what she should wear and how she should act and what she should do. And he, um, so his, um, you know, his possessiveness turned into fury in 1986 when Anne Marie attempted to, um, To, to you know, attempted to ease her way out of the relationship after being introduced by Governor Carper, of course, and his wife to Michael Scanlon, a then 31 year old executive with the credit company MBNA. And this was a healthy relationship for Annie. He was the same age, he was unmarried, and always called when he said he would. You know, he was a mature, respectable adult. He respected Annie and vice versa. And Annie's family loved Michael and considered him like a family member because both Michael and Annie were making a commitment towards marriage eventually and family. You know, they talked about it a lot. I mean, they were, they've been only dating for about a year, but they were talking about it a lot. And, you know, Michael took her to all kinds of uh, social things, um, you know, because he was the executive, like, you know, the, there was a downtown ball at the Hotel DuPont. She, you know, they did so much together. They would go on trips together and they, it was just a perfect relationship and they were in love, really. Um, so Annie, um, you know, it was just, he respected Annie and vice versa. Annie's family loved Michael and considered him like family, like I said. Um, 100% opposite from the train wreck with Campano. You know, he that was a train wreck. You know, finally Annie found somebody that she deserved and, uh, you know, and was in a good relationship. So, um so, and, you know, at one point, Michael invited Annie to go home to meet his parents for the weekend to Connecticut. That's where he was originally from. And uh, as a sweet gesture, Michael's mom put pictures of him as a baby in the room where Annie slept in their home. Um, Michael's parents adored Annie and breathed a sigh of relief that their son was dating such a wonderful woman it was marriage material. You know, they were like, he was getting older. They were like, mm, is he going to get married? And he never told Michael about her relationship with Tom because he had been married and because it was over. Also about her bulimia because she was, a, there was a fear of losing him. And, you know, um, Tom was always threatening to tell Scanlon about the relationship as a ploy to get her back. And that is something that continuously frightened Annie with her, you know, anxiety and everything. So she did not want to lose Mike. She loved him. And he was a perfect person for her. You know, he knew how to make her laugh. She knew how to make him laugh. I mean, it was just, you know, they were meant for each other. And, you know, she met him on good terms through the governor and his wife. And, you know, that was just wonderful. So, um, you know, that was, you know, he... Tom tried to, you know, sabotage that. Scanlon said after her death that he would have stayed, he would, he would not have, that he wouldn't have swayed his feelings and love for Annie, no matter what. Scanlon said after her death that he would not have, not 
He was in love with her as a person, not by her and uh, not her past or any mental issues she had. Um, he he said that that outweighed everything. She was such a wonderful, loving, caring, spectacular person who, um, you know, was a hard worker. She wanted to be a teacher eventually. You know, um, so it was. He just there. That didn't would have mattered. Um, you know, and uh, so Scanlon said that she had shared a lot with him eventually after her, about her eating disorders and her childhood, and that only made him love her more because of her strength and courage and how she got herself out and went to college and, you know, got the job at the governor's and, you know, he, he just, it made her love, love her, love him more, love her, you know, more, which, you know, he, um, he also said she, she had me when she laughed on her first date, when she laughed on her first date, her laugh was, was absolutely one of the most beautiful sounds I had ever heard. I knew right away, Annie was the woman I wanted to spend my life with and have as a mother of my children's mother of my children. Friends said Campana went crazy when he heard, you know, when he heard about this relationship and how well it was going, of course. Um, so, you know, he, when he heard of, of this, you know, um, he was sending her emails and, uh, you know, trying to break off the relationship, attacking her, calling, um, attacking her as white trash. And he was, uh, Michael Scanner was white trash, um, telling her, I could buy you anything you wanted. I have more money than I could spend in a lifetime. He, you know, he fumed this, you know, fumed uh, this to her in emails and calls. But Amory wanted more than that. And police believe that on the evening of Friday, June 27, 1996, she went to the restaurant in Philadelphia with Pender to tell him so. You know, she was, she told a co-worker she was going, you know, she didn't have a hard time putting her foot down. Annie was a very loving, caring person. And she had a hard time putting her foot down. And even to somebody as horrible as Tom, she, you know, had a really hard time putting her foot down and hurting people's feelings. That's how she was, you know. Um, so, you know, so she, he was saying, you know, but Amber, and so that's, you know, uh, what she was planning on doing because when her, her therapist, uh, her new therapist after the other one had died, um, Michelle Sullivan said that, you know, she was afraid of Tom and she was, she was afraid he was going to, he might even kill her. I mean, he she knew about how out of hand he was. I mean, they were in a car together at one point, and he locked her in the car and grabbed her arm. And, you know, she he, he was, you know, he could be brutal. So she was afraid of him, you know. He would have, like, outbursts, like, come into her house and start screaming, you know. She got several fan calls. He would leave, like, maybe 20 calls, and every hour, he was, like, out of control. Uh, so, you know. So, they left Shirley before 9 p.m. Anne-Marie Fahey, the woman in search of security, she was never able to find. And, uh, you know, she was never seen again after that night. 
So after her relationship had become serious with Michael, Annie tried many times to end the relationship. But because Annie had such a big heart, like I said, with Thomas's constant annoyance, she did not know how to put her foot down. In a series of emails and her diary, both of which were made public after the disappearance, their relationship emerges as something sometimes tender, sometimes obsessive, and obsessive, obviously. She wrote in her diary that Capanna was a controlling, manipulative, jealous, insecure maniac, you know, and that he she was glad to be rid of him because he just was so out of control. But then, you know, she didn't want to hurt his feelings, so, but then told him in an email the following month that he would always have a, always own a special plate piece of her heart and that she was glad that they could remain friends, even though they weren't dating anymore. The last exchange of an email is particularly poignant. She apologizes for being such a doggy downer, saying she tells Tom that sometimes she gets overwhelmed by the eating disorder and the intensity of her therapy sessions. He responds that she doesn't have to, to apologize. I promise, he continues, to make you laugh tonight at Pan, Pan uh, the restaurant was called Panorama, Panorama. Um, it was in Philly, to order calamari and surprise you with something that will make you smile. But um, Annie, all Annie was thinking when she read that email was, it will be finally over with this maniac and I can be happy with Michael without Tom, Tom's annoyances and stalking. So, you know, when he went to pick her up, he showed up that night with a $400 outfit that Faye had admired while shopping at Talbot's with her sister, but couldn't afford. Um, but you know, she didn't, you know, he, she didn't accept it. You know, I mean, he, you know, she, matter of, you know, that was after he killed her, he actually put it, you know, um, you know, in her house, you know, um, and I, I, because she, apparently she never accepted any big gifts like that from him. Um, they promised, um, he promised laughs and smiles, though there were nowhere in the evidence at restaurant paranormal in Philadelphia that, um, that they were laughing, um, at the restaurant. Uh, Jacqueline Daskus, a, a, their waitress that night had said, Campano did all the ordering. She said, there was no conversation as, as both picked up their $154 meal. Um, so, you know, they weren't talking. She said that they were, you know, there was no, you know, click of the glasses, no laughing, you know, um, Annie looked actually scared and, you know, just like she wanted to, wanted to be over. So that was, you know, uh, so, and like I said, Fahey's therapist later told police that Fahey feared Capano and only would have agreed to go to dinner with him to break up with him. Um, so, and then Fahey would never see him again. So that was, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, why, you know, he didn't get his way. So, um, but anyway, so next week, um, we're going to do the next episode and it's a uh, tune in, you know, you want to tune in for part two because we'll be talking about, uh, the murder and Annie Fahey 
on the next week episode of Delaware Crime. And then we will cover where is Annie, okay, and the search, you know. And then also Thomas Capano's checkered pass and his trial of this madman. And, you know, Thomas Capano did have all these great law positions, but there were things that he was doing that were similar. He was treating women um, similar to the way he was treating Annie. So, um, and that was in the 80s, and he was married then, and, you know, so, you know, it was not, he was not a model person, even back then. He was a, just a bad person. So, uh, anyway, thank you, and, you know, I just want to say about his brothers, um, one of his brothers passed away, uh, Joseph, which is really sad, um, you know, they, they, you know, they might have helped him with some things, but, I, you know, he was, I don't want to put them down because I, I, I just think that it was, they didn't know what was going on and, uh, you know, it is what it is and, uh, you know, they're all, you know, have lives and their children are all grown and they're doing well. So, you know, and then, you know, same thing with the Fahey family, you know, they are hurting and, uh, you know, they will never be the same. That, you know, even when their brothers died, the other brothers, at least they were able to go to their funeral um, and, uh, you know, say goodbye. But, uh, you know, they never got closure. So I just want to, you know, say for everybody in this thing, it's, you know, don't, you know, think the worst about people because let me tell you something. And Anne Marie, she was a wonderful lady. And a lot of people, you know, do things that they regret. And she was trying to get out of that, you know, situation. So I, you know. So anyway, um, so for clips, um, th- and I just want to thank everybody for listening today. And I'm sorry I was late with the episode. So um, for clips and photos of this case, you can, um, at the bot, you can please refer to the episode, this episode description. And I'll have my Facebook page on there um and also my email address where you can send comments advice or case suggestions uh delaware crime is an audio francis production what do you think francis okay mom